right, welcome to episode 86 of Bumper Sticker Faith Podcast. My name is Sam, and my co-host today is Mike Stanzik, and uh, we are very happy to have a special guest on today, uh, Dr. Mark Vernon. And I'm sorry in our correspondences, I just called you Mark because <laughs> I didn't I, I didn't read your full bio yet, um, <laughs> Dr. Vernon. Um, That's absolutely fine by me. You can please feel free to call me Mark. <laughs> but um, yeah, I was a bit out of touch with maybe the times or some of the things that were going on. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Jack, sent me your video that you did of on AI, the, the um, 10 points uh, for consideration about AI. Um, and so I, I first saw the video that way, and then I got excited about it and reached out to you. And then uh, subsequent to that, looked more <laughs> at you and at your website and uh, the, the stuff that you write. And I was like, wow, this guy, I really like this guy. Um, so Dr. Mark Vernon, for people who don't know, he is a psychotherapist. Uh, his practice is in London. And um, he's written many books, 10 or more, 10 plus books. And you have an interest, he has an interest in uh, ancient philosophy, the illumination of the inner life. And your writing covers subjects like uh, friendship and beliefs to well-being and living in this modern world. And you uh, are um, a, um, oh, now I just forgot his Forgot his name. This is Owen Barfield, Owen Barfield. <laughs> an Owen Barfield scholar, which is super cool, and um, very much interested in Barfield. And uh, you've written on Dante too, and the um, and the comedy. And maybe we could have you on again sometime to talk about that because I'm really interested uh, in that as well. So uh, Mark also has a degree in physics, uh, two degrees in theology, and a PhD in uh, philosophy. And you were a priest at one point. So welcome to uh, Bumper Sticker Faith. Hey, look, thank you. You know, um, Barfield and C.S. Lewis used to go on annual walking holidays, and when they walked, they read the Dante's Divine Comedy again. Really? Wow. In, in Italian, of course, as well. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it was it was hugely important for them. You, you, it, a bit like if you've read Barfield, you start seeing it all over C.S. Lewis. Similarly with the Divine Comedy, actually. It's all over C.S. Lewis as well. So. Yeah. Nice links. I appreciate it. I'm now we're getting getting off on the wrong foot already, but I appreciate most people that I've read focus on like uh, the inferno part of it. Maybe sometimes you know the uh, purgatorio, but I I love hearing over the last couple of days of I as I've done some listening of your work that how you bring out stuff from uh, the last book, uh, the Paradiso, which has been something different and cool for me, but. Today, uh, we're going to talk about artificial intelligence, AI. And as I said, a friend of mine uh, sent me that video because he knew I was kind of, uh, very, let's just say, skeptical about AI. And it kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And um, I had been saying that AI, to me, feels like the pornographication of words. <laughs> so you have, you know, in, in image-based pornography, they j just create very fake uh Un, unembodied, you know, no participation. These, these, this sex just isn't real. And in my thinking, it was like with words and thoughts and ideas, AI is kind of doing that same thing with words. And so I was pretty negative about it. But uh, your video then outlined these 10 points, which we'll talk about. Um, but they gave me pause. 
and it allowed me, it gave me permission, I guess, to just be more curious about AI, AI rather than just uh, reactionary, which, which is good. I think there's plenty of reason to react, but it, there's also uh, good reasons that you pointed out to be curious. And, um, and the first thing that you pointed out, which maybe you could elaborate on, is the lockdown mentality that uh, we, we brought to AI right away. And you, you pointed that out, and I think that's helpful for people to realize. So what's the, um, the lockdown mentality? Let's begin with that, I guess. Yeah, look, maybe it's worth just saying, first of all, that um, part of the reason why I've got interested in this is I've been part of uh, a research group for a couple of years looking at AI, um, mm. and it's interdisciplinary. So it's philosophers and theologians, anthropologists, but also technologists and right. people that work in AI. Um, with, with the premise that, that AI is happening and, and there is reason mm -hmm. to be concerned, if not alarmed, as you're, as you're suggesting. Um, but this maybe is partly, and at least it's an opportunity for us to think about what intelligence actually is again. Mm -hmm. And I, I kind of sense that part of the panic is that we've sort of lost touch with what it is to be intelligent in a strange mm -hmm. kind of way. We're so used to imagining ourselves like machines, mm -hmm. that now machines coming along, it looks like it's gonna take over. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and similarly, you know, that it's a rather mechanical approach to think of things in either it's going mad or we just close it down completely. Um, and, and this is the kind of lockdown mentality, which um, I don't know whether it's going to be repeated again, but it does feel like at least some have been saying AI is an existential threat. Um, of course, you know, it looked like the pandemic was an existential threat. Mm -hmm. Um, at least initially, um, and that's what the experts said, um, and not without cause. There's always some cause in this. You know, I'm not I'm not complete conspiracy theorist about this at all. But it just struck me that um, uh, three years ago, I think the idea that a bunch of expert scientists popping up and saying close it down, it would have seemed a bit crazy. No one would have quite um, taken them that seriously. Um, you know, how can that possibly be done yeah. would have been the, the response um, when you're talking about research projects in the private sector, in the public sector, you know, in Europe, in the US, um, in China, all sorts of other places as well. Um, but the fact that it was sort of done with the pandemic mm -hmm. um, combined with the sort of hype that you get in the press now quite routinely about existential threats. And again, my point is not there's no threat at all, right. um, but it's just the way it gets ramped up. So as you say, it just stops us thinking about it um, mm -hmm. and, and stops people talking about it. Um, so it felt like the, the mood around AI felt quite similar to me as the pandemic when it first mm -hmm. appeared. Um, and so you know, that, that, that was sort of why this idea occurred to me. And you also yeah. you also said that the AI industry is you pointed this out helpfully they thrive on the promise of tomorrow, and uh, and and is often led by those who are confusing themselves uh, with gods. So they oversell their their product and their promises, and they're trying to make money. And so of course they're going to hype up the fact that AI is doing all these great things in that. Yeah. So look, th this came from me. Came was put to me by people who work in the industry and they're kind of aware that there are a bunch of maybe very 
gifted and intelligent people, but also people that kind of like to feel that they're in the vanguard of tomorrow. And, you know, that is very much what the technology industry um, promises to deliver a better tomorrow. And again, not without some reason. Um, and also playing, you know, into our hopes for a better tomorrow as well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's complicated, but um, I feel that um, we need to be uh, alert to the psychology that's going on here mm -hmm. as well. Um, yeah. And the idea that we, we, we regular folk can't understand anything about this and we've just got to um, let these forces play themselves out. Um, you know, we, that, that's just not true. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's, again, worth challenging. Yeah, it's not, it sounds like you're, it's not that you're wearing rose-tinted glasses about AI. Um, it's, it's that you're encouraging people to be thoughtful in their assessment of, of the technology. Um, you know, I, I think of one, uh, one writer that I enjoy, he, um, he makes the comparison between, he, he draws an analogy um, between technology and wealth that wealth is not innately good or evil. It, it, it is morally neutral. It's the use of wealth that um, that's good or evil. And technology is, is much the same way in most cases. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a, a morally neutral entity, uh, but it's the use of the technology that can be good or evil. And, uh, and mm -hmm. so I really appreciated the 10 points. And I encourage people, I think, Sam, you're going to link mm -hmm. it yep. in the episodes. I encourage people to to watch the video, it's not long. Um, and so uh, hear out all the 10 points because I, I think they're extremely helpful. In many ways, it sounds like what you were trying to do with the video is you know, there's lots of concerns about the, the economic effect of introducing AI technology or the industrial effect of introducing AI technology. In many ways, that didn't seem like what you were trying to speak to. In many ways, it just sounded like you were trying to um, and and ably uh, articulate the difference between human intelligence mm -hmm. and artificial intelligence. So maybe you can speak a little bit to, to that at a, at a high level. Yeah, I mean, so on the first bit of what you said there, thanks very much. And I think that um, the rush to ethics is another problem that we have now. Um, it's like if only the right code can be put together, then we'll sort of hold things in check. And clearly, in some ways, there's a need for ethical codes and so on. But they always feel a bit kinkinutish to me, trying to hold back the tide. Um, unless you've done the prior work, which is to think, you know, what is this ethics supposed to be serving? What's it actually guiding us towards? And if we can have better contact with that, who we think we are, what our desires are, um, the kind of world that we want to see manifesting um you know then you get the energy that can you know at least some in some parts of the world um will adhere to the ethical code because they'll see that the ethical code is in the service of this um vision and um, but when ethical codes are just in defense mode all the time saying stop 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 that's when they don't really work mm -hmm. um they just become sort of rules that either get broken or feel sort of constraining and artificial yeah. and put it another way it's um you know an ethical code can be purely prohibitive or casuistic but ethics at its best is an articulation of the good yeah yeah exactly and and, and you know all the great philosophers in the ancient world realized that you know ethics um is a bit second best to actually desiring wanting 
um, and what, what are you going to give your life for? So they, mm -hmm. they always tend to go for that. Um, and, and so, you know, this feels to me like a moment where we might sit back and at least some of us ask, so what is our intelligence? How does it actually work? And I think there's a sort of first step, which is problematizing this easy alignment between AI and intelligence, um, as if, you know, it's more or less in the same ballpark. It's mm -hmm. just a question of which outpaces the other. Um, and th actually then thinking, well, no, our intelligence doesn't really work in machine-like ways at all. Mm -hmm. um, and beginning to become more conversant with why that is so different. And again, just, just the stress, you know, this is not just my idea. If you speak to anyone in the AI world, they'll tell you that whatever machines are doing, um, they're not working like human intelligence. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's a sort of, um, it's a secret that's kind of hidden in plain sight. Um, but what isn't done so well, I think, is thinking about the way our intelligence works. So um, just you know, to so if like, I could yeah, give you a quick example yeah. of, of, yep. of, yeah, so look, if you think about, think about what science does, particularly in an age of some supercomputers, is it models um, reality, and then those models are run on, typically on supercomputers, and then the outputs from the model are compared with reality, and if they match up, that tells you something. Maybe something about reality, but certainly it gives you a kind of handle on reality so you can then develop technology. Um, and um, that's often what drives a lot of science, actually, um, is, is it's not so much um, working out how reality actually is, but having developing tools on the back of it. You know, so in the in the in the biomedical world, for example, or in the uh, mechanical, you know, mecha mechanical engineering world. Um, they don't tend to ask the ontological questions, but what they are interested mm -hmm. in is what technology from the science can get traction on the world. Mm -hmm. uh, but what seems to have happened with AI is that, whereas, um, I, I mean, this is the example I use because I did a physics degree and I, I'm, I still keep in touch with my physics tutor, who's a cosmologist. So he builds models of the cosmos, runs them on some supercomputers and then looks at the differences between the model and reality and that leads to various inferences. Um, but what he never says is, did you know, today I made a cosmos on the computer. <laughs> I'm like the god that sort of pressed the button and off went yeah. the Big Bang. Um, and um, that's because, you know, it would be foolish to think such a thing. But I think because we've got so used to the idea that our brains yes. are fancy computers, yep. that when a computer looks like it's doing something that we presume our brains are doing, the distance between the two just collapses and we think that actually a brain is being turned on here. But, you know, some very basic um, uh, differences, um, you know, would suggest there's actually a huge difference. I mean, for one thing, we tend not to calculate. Um, and again, this is a very standard piece of psychology that if we spend the whole time calculating our way through the world, we'd hardly get anything done. Right. Um, the minute you have to calculate what to do when you're driving a car is the minute you start to fumble and mm. even can't drive a car. Um, we work on a very different way, intuitively, unconsciously, um, imaginatively. Um, our felt presence in the world, our embodied state and um, relationship to other bodies around and about. Um, you know, this that's the way that we work. This, the, the sense of presence and participation yes. um, is how I, I, I sort of try to summarize it up. Um, and so just, you know, just that one example, we don't calculate on the whole. 
Um, and if we do, everything slows down and we become rather um, sort of mo monodimensional um, until we get back into the intuitive mode. I love that example of your uh, teacher building the models of the universe, but, mm -hmm. but never once does someone think that he actually built a real universe. Uh, but then on the other hand, we build these artificial intelligent machines and we think that, oh, this, this is real intelligence. And I just want to highlight that and point that out for people because that is, that, that's such a good, it's such a good point. And, it's, and on top of that, Sam, yeah. sorry, I, I keep interjecting. I, I should let you finish. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, no, go ahead. Cause I was going well, to just a very quick thing. I like, I, I just want to, what I want to emphasize out of what, Dr. Vernon just mentioned is that, um, you know, we, we're very accustomed to saying things like, you know, our brain is a supercomputer. Yep. You know, and what I want to point out for our listeners is that that is an analogy. So our, mm -hmm. our brain is not a supercomputer. Mm -hmm. Our mind uh, is not a supercomputer. That's not, that's not a good way to describe, uh, well, whether you're describing brain or mind by that analogy that's what it is is an analogy and and so what what needs to be emphasized here is that it might not be a good one it's not mm -hmm. a helpful analogy mm -hmm. to, to actually understand um what uh what's really happening with a human being um so i just wanted to emphasize and look, that point. Again, just to just stress you know this is this is kind of common knowledge amongst neurologists say you know i right. work as a psychotherapist i've worked in psychiatric hospitals um i know a couple of neurologists um, and what happens is that you you take a model of typically the very fractional part of the brain that you're studying um, and you see whether that model is illuminating. But you never think that there's actually networks in the brain, for example. Um, you know, rather the network analogy, as you say, can be illuminating for. And of course, yeah. it's also it provides a convenient way of talking about things, mm -hmm. yeah. particularly to a wider audience. Um, yep. When you know every neurologist would say that we're barely scratching the surface mm -hmm. um, of what's going on in the brain. If we're lucky, one or two models give us traction, and then we're able to um, do something useful for people, uh, maybe performing operations or. Yep. Well, instead, in the whole area of medication, um, you know, psychotropic medication, almost nobody has any idea about how the medication works. It just mm -hmm. happens to bring about certain effects, which. You know, again, if you're lucky, are useful to you. Um, but there's a long history in psychology of metaphors getting ahead of themselves. I mean, yeah. you know, perhaps the most famous that people use is this idea that depression's caused by some kind of chemical imbalance. Right. Um, there's absolutely no science that indicates that at all. Um, I believe um, that it was um, an advertising um, trope wow. um, that you know, that, uh, that uh, a pharmaceutical came up with, because it sort of makes intuitive sense. You know, you're taking in a chemical, it's restoring some kind of chemical imbalance. Huh. Um, you know, so there's a long history um, when we look wow. into ourselves, mm -hmm. of not what, you know, we're, we're, we're mysteries to ourselves, but if you, you know, any any flame that seems yeah. to cast some light on it, we're, we're quite inclined to grab it. And what we need to appreciate is that our intelligence is way more complex. <laughs> in us. I mean, it's, it's physical. It has to do with our bodies too. Like our brain, as far as I'm concerned, extends from, from the top of my head to the bottom of my toes. The things that I'm able to learn and take in with my whole body, that's, that, 
that's my intelligence. And as you said in the original video, like even memory is stored in the world around us at times. Um, so you, the illustration I used a couple episodes ago was about I was cleaning my lawnmower blades and, you know, a simple task, but you want to put them on back on the right way. And I remember I could have like taken a picture of it, but I didn't want to do that. I instead looked at how the blades were worn, you know, the shiny parts and that enabled me that memory. I stored that memory in the thing around me to help me, you know, put it back together. But we're doing that. It's so much more complicated than just calculating, in other words. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, again, the idea that, me that memories are stored in the brain um, is a, a, a shorthand that, that's used. But, but if, if you take that, um, premise. Um, no one knows how that could actually happen. Uh, again, this is fairly obvious as to why it's such a um, a, a tricky thing to um, show. Because a memory chip, for example, you know the the, um, the the silicon inside the chip takes on a certain kind of form and holds that form, so that when um, you go look in again, you discover that form, and the memory can be literally retrieved. But the brain um, is, is, is very uh, plastic, as, the, as mm -hmm. the phrase goes, and nothing stays the same. So what was the form of your brain in one moment will be very different in the next, and certainly you know, over a period of minutes and hours. Um, and of course, when the form goes, the memory goes too. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so it is very mysterious as to how memories then return to us. Mm -hmm. um, but again, <coughs> just intuitively um we quite often recover memories when we go to a certain place um, or hear some music again or um you know have a certain feeling um and so clearly our memory is operating in a much much more holistic way than just as if it were memory chips in our head mm -hmm. that we somehow search through um mm -hmm. something 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 else is going on entirely um, I mean, I, I, I'm friendly and do a lot of dialogues with Rupert Sheldrake um, and uh, Rupert is infamous or well known, depending on how you look at it, for this proposition that there are kind of fields of memory around us um, and that, um, that we are in contact with those wider fields. Um, and so our brains then would shake or, or receive that information in some kind of way, rather than being the place where these things are stored. Mm. He uses the analogy from physics. You know, physics is very familiar with fields um, now, and he wonders whether there's biological fields. Now, you know, that remains to be proven, um, but nonetheless, um, there's something intuitively um, intriguing about that, at least. Um, and I believe, again, because of um, uh, limitations in what you might call traditional biology, this idea of fields is receiving more interest again once more. So, you know, we have to see where it goes. Um, but, you know, memory is a tremendous problem how it works in, our, in us. Um, and so it seems to me that a, a wider set of hypotheses is, is going to be valuable.
you think we got to where we are in in culture and in thinking that memory that intelligence is just like a machine? Does it have to do with the stuff that uh, Ian McGochris describes about the two halves of the brain? Um, if so, maybe talk a little bit about that, um, because it seems to me like AI is just uh, left brain gone wild, basically, you know, just constantly calculating, manipulating data and losing touch with, you know, the, the, the right brain, the meaning, the wholeness, the, the soul part, right? <clears throat> I don't know if that has to do with how we got to where we're at, but what are your thoughts on that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, look, Ian McGilchrist is making a lot of the running in this, and um, he's proving very, very helpful to a lot of people. Um, I mean, I prefer actually to um, go with ideas themselves having a certain kind of power. You know, I'm a psychotherapist. Our dreams are very, very important, mm. I think. And um, I think that in, in Western civilization, particularly at what we call the moment of the scientific revolution, you know, four or five hundred years ago, um, people like Francis Bacon started writing about perfectible machines. And the dream was seeded that because they use logic and weren't troubled by emotion, they would become more intelligent than, than we are. Um, and the, the difference between then and now is that it's actually possible to make the kind of machines that figures like Francis Bacon dreamt of. Um, but this idea that, um, that the machine um, is, it, it, I mean, it, the thing is that the, uh, the machine model certainly gives us power in life. Um, you know, we're speaking of our computers, mm-hmm. there's things we can do because we've modeled reality on machines which just weren't possible before. Um, so there's no doubt that it delivers tremendous powers um, but again, there's this slippage between the delivery of use and the way the world actually is. And I think that I, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, where we're getting to with technology now is actually a bit of a tipping point rather than just a kind of escalation of progress into a technological future. Hmm. And we'll start to realise that this technological <clears throat> model has delivered tremendous things, but it can only take us so far. Um, and so the Francis Bacon dream which you know has been crucial to western civilization um the whole economy our ways of life are now organized to produce technology to use technology to benefit from technology and but i i i wouldn't be surprised if um, we're starting to see a bit of an inflection point now um and we're you know we'll realize probably because we were forced to and through disaster or tragedy um, that we need to understand ourselves in the world in very different ways. Um, mm. And that would be um, the future to pursue. Could you maybe just expand on that point a little bit? I mean, I think um, I think you mentioned some of that under the point number six, that we are adaptive. Technology is surprisingly unadaptive. Um, you mentioned, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe it wasn't <laughs> under that subheading, but um you you mentioned how at least when it comes to sort of these did you call them large language models of ai that mm-hmm. you're already seeing some of these programs i think you use the phrase cannibalizing mm-hmm. um you know uh just because they've they've put out so much data it sounds like so much output that now as they're mining uh what's available as a source for their own output they're starting to mine the output that the program itself put out, in which case it's cannibalizing its own output. 
um could you just expand a little bit more either on that or just just to to make it a little bit more clear for our listeners and for me um in what way are we sort of cresting is the wave of of uh, this particular iteration of ai kind of cresting yeah so so this applies particularly to the large language model kind of ai there are other kinds of ai but the thing about the large language model is it has a limited data set it's a very large data set um you know what's available in english on the internet um but nonetheless um to get to this point and you know there has been a kind of jump suddenly the turing test was passed at least in terms of chat gpt's interface um and so that was sort of surprising and i think that the that's right the turing test could you explain the turing test for our listeners yeah so the turing test is this um method that was proposed by alan turing the famous computer genius um and he said that if you can't tell the difference between a human in you and a computer when you're interacting with it then if it is a computer then it's passed a test a sort of threshold where it can be regarded as intelligent as human beings i, I mean in parenthesis and I, i think i mentioned this a bit turing himself thought it wasn't a very good test mm. and he had various reasons for thinking that but nonetheless it sort of got into the collective psyche and and certainly the media um use it as a shorthand all the time um but the, the point is that even if there's been a kind of a bit of an s curve a run up side of the s curve there's again the, the quieter members of the ai community are wondering whether there's actually a bit of an inflection now or plateauing perhaps because of this thing about how large language models um need more and more data in order to keep um the progress in terms of their development going and so if they reach a limit um then that's going to cause a plateauing but also then there's also perhaps this cannibalizing effect where um the mistakes that are made in one generation get kind of amplified in the next because the mistakes are getting fed into um mm. the data set i mean i i i worked as a technology journalist back in the 1990s and around 2000 mm. on the financial times and other um publications and then the expression was if you put shit in you get shit out and uh, it's it's basically the same effect it's a, it's a long standing uh known effect in in the technology world. I want to be uh I'm aware of your uh time uh have you know a little bit more but could you speak some maybe encouragement or uh direction of inspiration uh for some people right now and I'm and I'm thinking of like you said AI is is a chance for us, reckoning with AI is a chance for us to learn how to become like more human to really understand what human intelligence is and who we are and mm-hmm. there's people i have friends who are like in marketing who are in teaching who are artists who are writers and they very much feel uh threatened you know financially threatened my friend in marketing is threatened by that cuz <laughs> ai can do things really quick And so if you're like uh in any of those fields marketing writing art school teachers pastors people of faith um what encouragement could you give them on how to uh how to be more human and then maybe even how to leverage AI how to how to how to go forward in light of this I don't know if that mm-hmm. makes sense Yeah no no I mean maybe a, a parallel is useful um and it's a parallel that's often cited we feel like we're at another moment such as when the printing press arrived in the world 
Mm. And, you know, this was a technology that undoubtedly led to a, or contributed to a lot of turbulence um, and, in fact, war. Um, the religious wars in Europe were um, certainly fanned by the capacity to spread, particularly the sermons and opinions of Martin Luther around, Luther, around um, Europe um, in double quick time, particularly in the 1520s. Um, and then also um, the production of catechisms suddenly became very important what you believe. Um, and so that sense of, you know, believing the right things has become very much part of the modern landscape as well. It, it's quite surprising, but medieval people didn't really mind what you believed at all. Um, at least it was a very second order question, but that because of the printing press, things could get put on the page in black and white, quite literally spread around the world um, very quickly in Europe. Um, so look, these things are disruptive, um, but at the same time, I guess now most people would think the book is a good thing. Um, and there's been waves of moral anxiety about books. I, I remember reading that when in the 18th century and the 19th century, long novels started coming out. Um, there was a whole moral panic around what are people doing, spending their noses buried in a, a novel all day long? Shouldn't they be doing something better? You know, is this going to sort of addle their brains just yeah. staring at the page? So, you know, th there's always kind of ways of concern. And, and again, the concerns are rooted in part of reality. Um, but I, I feel that the, the way to proceed is to try and remember that these are tools and they don't have agency. We have agency and how we use them um, is what's really crucial. And so remaining in good contact with your imagination, with your inspiration, with your intuition, um, and then working out how you can use these tools um, to develop that, to make things manifest. Um, I mean, there's been a little bit of this already, actually. It works in quite quick time, actually. I mean, I have friends who are academics and um, ChatGPT has changed essay writing among students, you know, within three months, say, very, very quickly. Suddenly, academics realized that students were handing in work that wasn't their own, but that had come from ChatGPT. But it, it was instantly recognizable because the tone was very smooth, rather bland, you know, um, it has a certain kind of quality and character. So it was instantly recognizable. No one was fooling anybody. But what they've had to do is work out quickly how ChatGPT can be a bit like a library. And whereas before you'd say, these are the books I consulted, you know, then maybe now you have to start saying, these are the questions that I asked ChatGPT mm -hmm. and the sort of thing it came up with. But show that you're working with what the uh, large language model has produced, not just producing it, replicating it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that, that, that iteration has actually happened quite fast. At first, there was a sort of sense of, oh, my goodness, how do we deal with this? But within another term, you know, within, say, six months, there's, there's already... Um, people de developing ways of how to keep real learning mm -hmm. um, going in the world because they have a, a sense of what real learning is. And so you can start to work out how ChatGPT can serve that. So it's that kind of process. And um, I think we need to, um, to get on. Um, but again, you know, it, it requires us to return to ourselves really at base and ask, yes. um, in, in this case, what is a real education? Yeah, and I, I think that uh, I, I found your video extremely helpful and soulful um, because of that very emphasis on humanness and just the, on the uniqueness of human nature and mm -hmm. and just the emphasis that artificial intelligence 
is not making human intelligence redundant. Hmm. It would only do that if human intelligence were the same thing as artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. but it is returning to use the, the phrase, the phrases presence and participation. I think that was 0.5 and uh, is a key moment in the video. Um, just trying to articulate what, what human intelligence uh, is, uh, what's really constitutive of human intelligence. You know, you mentioned um, you're getting more in touch with our intuition and, and these mm-hmm. different things. You know, artists feel threatened by these, you know, photorealistic images that are being um, produced by, by AI, uh, you know, like is AI going to make art redundant? Well, well, no, it's always been recognized by artists that there's an enormous amount of intuition mm-hmm. that is, is taking place in truly great works of art. Um, and, and so uh, while AI may become a tool for art, you know, in the same way that, you know, I, I have a, a friend who is a photorealist painter and he would use computer programming to blur out certain parts of images. And then he would paint what he sees on the screen. He's making use of a technological tool to, to create his art, but he's, he's still being guided by his own sort of um, desiring his own process of, of seeking and intuiting and, and uh, intelligencing his way through, through something, but it's a uniquely human process within him that's making use of the tool and mm-hmm. that is not going out of style uh, yeah and, and also you know in in the arts i i i'm not an expert here at all but my sense is that a return to materiality in art is starting to um return I'm, you know one of the best known british artists um who's very successful now is grayson perry and he's best known for making pots. He makes clay pots and then he glazes them and, and decorates mm-hmm. them in particular ways. Um, now, I think, you know, 10 years ago, he would have been rather overlooked, but I think because he makes pots mm-hmm. and had, there's a, there's a real craft in his art yep. as well yeah. as the art itself. Um, you know, that materiality, I think, um, is likely to to, to be um, the future. And, and another great, very well-known artist, David Hockney, you know, he made these very beautiful landscape paintings using an uh, an iPad, um, and then they were they were displayed at the Royal Academy here in London, um, and they are very beautiful. They were you know very immersive kind of images, but there was a certain flatness to them, and you know we're very alert to these subtle things, um, and so we learn to trust our subtle responses. Um, that is where the future lies, mm-hmm. and and I suspect that. David Hockney's iPad um, paintings, again, are a bit of a sort of peak, definitely worth doing and definitely um, arresting in their own way, but kind of with a slight fat flatness that you don't get when there's actual, you know, watercolours or oils, tempera, whatever Hockney's used in the past. So that's interesting that not only does like the finished product that a human or a machine makes uh, lack a certain an amount of like intuition or humor or, or you know some element that we can detect but also the person viewing it has an intuition that they bring to it the viewer's intelligence that can pick up that flatness in that which so it's almost like a double not safeguard but safeguard against um, us thinking that our intelligences are the same as a, that of a machine so yeah. as, as we close though um any final thoughts or uh, words that you have that 
You didn't get to say yet. This has been quick. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I mean, I think that I think it, maybe just to add a, a further bit of psychology, which is yeah, um, we sort of half alluded to, but you know, um, part of our intelligence is being aware of our own desires, mm-hmm. um, and that's partly mm-hmm. fears, but it's also loves and hopes, and um, being prepared to spend the time sort of waiting on those desires um and you know that that theme of of um i think waiting and patience um is quite a good one to have because there's another story that's quite commonly told is that things are speeding up um you know everything's happening so fast um you know maybe it is in some ways um certainly in some domains like the technology space but i think that in, in the psychotherapy room um, when someone says everything's moving too fast, it's actually itself an expression of fear and panic, mm. sort of even hysteria. Um, and so developing the capacity just to sort of hold off, to wait, to be patient. Um, quite quickly, you find yourself in a very different zone. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a pleasant zone to be in, actually. Mm. Um, because then more than just the rather narrow concerns of the ego consciousness can start to show up. Um, you know, maybe if Ian McGilchrist was talking to us, he would say it's returning to a more left hemisphere approach, a right hemisphere, mm-hmm. I should say, approach um, and, and moving away from left hemisphere dominance. Yeah. Margaret, are there um, are there any books that you'd recommend for either of your own or um, of, of others if uh, if anyone wanted to further explore um, the perspective you're advocating when it comes to AI or... Yeah, well, um, Barfield is pretty interesting on this just to you know to i mean and, and c.s lewis you know so c.s lewis's book the discarded image mm. is mm. a lot about how um the modern mind um evolved and and it's very drawn on barfield's ideas um barfield his uh, main books aren't immediately transparent but there's a there's a very nice series of lectures he gave now publishes history guilt and habit mm. history guilt and habit and mm. quite a good little starter on barfield um I, one of the best books I read about the machine imagination and the dream that we would become more and more mechanical, um, a book by Jeremy Nadler, and he wrote a book called In the Shadow of the Machine. And it's like a deep history um, of the consciousness that we're now living in. And it's almost to read it is almost like a kind of initiation into how this dream has gripped us. And of course, the minute you talking about a dream is the minute the dream starts to, yeah. well, certainly it, you, you become more in control of it, how you're going to relate to it rather than just being held by it. So in the, in the shadow of the machine by Jeremy Nagler, it's quite a long read, but it's a very enjoyable read. It's hugely well, well researched. Mm. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Vernon, for joining us today and for digging into this. We really appreciate uh, your time. Uh, Mike and I are going to, uh, keep talking here about this, but, um, we just want to thank you for, for joining us and for your time. Thank you for your work. Yeah. Hey, thanks for reaching out. It's obviously great when you put something out there and uh, it resonates with other people. That's what our intelligence can do. So I appreciate it. Yeah. And I want to encourage people. I'll, I'll put links to this, but to go to, uh, Dr. Vernon's website and and see some of the things that, that you're doing, because it's just, uh, seems like fantastic stuff. Thank you very much. All Cheers. Right. Cheers. Thank you. Well, that was really great. Sam, what are you thinking of? As, uh... I was thinking of, I, I was 
one, I was thinking about art for some reason, not for some reason, but uh, I interviewed um, the artist Emily Verdine a few episodes ago. And on it, um, we showed some of her work. And, and one of the uh, works that she did was a picture of Jordan Peterson's face in all it was it was done in green and it had him vomiting snakes and his eyes were like in an ecstatic state looking upwards and like i'm i'm i i wanted her to talk about that and the way that she talked about it was just just amazing like and and, and i'm i bring this up because of the difference between like a calculating machine versus a human intuition guided by the spirit of God, which maybe we could go more into that about the Mm -hmm. kind of the, the Christian way of looking at this. Um, Which maybe I can just mention briefly, um, you know, uh, Dr. Vernon would probably not characterize himself as a Christian. mm -hmm. You know, uh, he would probably characterize himself as an agnostic given his, his past literature. So, um, so Sam and I are, uh, bring his ideas up because they're good ideas yeah, and they're sure. extremely valuable um, to interact with and mm-hmm. engage with, but he's not representing a Christian view per se. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to, you have to do the extra homework to, to apply his ideas to um, Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just feel like that's worth mentioning just so we're all aware of, of where, where we're all coming from. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a Holy <clears throat> spirit that's involved in, in, in intelligence as well, human intelligence as yeah. well, right? Um, which yeah. I, <laughs> I don't think the Holy Spirit descends on chat GPT. Maybe, maybe it could, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe the enemy does. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, the other thing that I thought of, I mean, that's a, I'm gonna have to look up that painting that looks, gnar- that sounds well, gnarly. Okay, well, uh, let me talk. Can I just talk before you? Yeah, go for it. A you little bit more about that. What she was thinking when she did that, um, and it was just her intuition guiding her, she said, or the, yeah. the spirit guiding her because she is a Christian. And she was saying like when Jordan Peterson first came on the scene in 2015, 16, and he was talking through the Genesis series and giving those lectures, uh, he was saying things that nobody was saying, daring to say. And like people were asking her, like, why did you put snakes coming out of his mouth? Aren't snakes a sign of the enemy uh, of Satan? But, but I forget exactly her explanation, but she said, no, there's other reasons for snakes in the Bible, such as wisdom. And, and then even um, Moses lifting up the bronze serpent on the pole and um, this just this flood of snakes, this revolution, this new thing where he was challenging ideas and um, he was just vomiting truth, basically. And, yeah. and it was just lighting, lighting up the world and changing people's perspectives about God and life and all that. But that image like truly captured that moment, I think, and her explanation of it was beautiful. And it's like no, no computer can, I mean, nothing can do that other than a person, that intuition. And I think, uh, again, please, everybody listen, listen to the video, uh, because actually hearing Mark Vernon describe his own views at length is going to be the the best way that you can encounter them, you know, Um, but one of the the key points that didn't really come up just now in our interview with him, but um, that he emphasizes, he he mentioned he did mention the presence and participation mm-hmm. elements of human intelligence. But what where that's coming from is the idea that human intelligence 
cannot be abstracted from our embodiment. Mm -hmm. So in other words, like he, he our would agree to that. He would agree. Right. To that. Well, yeah. exactly. Yeah. He, he said it on the yeah. video. I mean, oh, okay. That's yeah. what he's trying to get at with the presence and participation yeah. thing. Keep going on. So, that. That's really good. Yeah. So artificial intelligence, like, like there, there's a, there's a motherboard processing, right? So there's, there's an object, but we're talking about a disembodied intelligence. So in other words, there's nothing conditioning. Uh, there's no body conditioning mm -hmm. artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. there, there, there's uh, so we imagine that as freedom from limitation. Mm -hmm. um, but that's because we have all become Gnostic, mm -hmm. right? We're all, we have all agreed to the idea that uh, Dr. Vernon was, was trying to discredit of the perfectible machine mm -hmm. um, that like, Oh, well, if we could be released from the body, mm -hmm. then that's good. That's why artificial intelligence has one over on us. Right. Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't have a body. Well, no, what's so important about Mark Vernon's work is that he's flipping that on its head. Mm -hmm. um, he's saying that our embodiment is actually an asset. Yep. Because it, it, our embodiment, our is, limitation is, yeah, right. Is our limitation quote yep. unquote is, is actually a, a key piece of what it means for us to be humanly intelligent. So we, we have the, the, uh, abstracting power, um, that, that is being, uh, uh, that, that, we, that is mimicked in artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. but we have so much more, right. We're, we're embodied creatures. And so that embodiment is a huge part yep. of what makes you human. You are not human apart from a human body. You are not human apart yep. from a human body. And so your processing happens through the body. Yeah. Uh, this is so key. And I, as he, so he mentioned the, the interesting return in the arts. Uh, we probably don't want to make our whole conversation about the arts, but just so fascinating. You know, sometimes it's helpful just to take one field yeah. and just press in. But um, you know, when it comes to the arts, a return to the value of the embodiment of art. So mm -hmm. someone uh, using uh, artisanship, right? Uh, pottery. Yeah. But I also thought of um, Arthur Kwan Lee. Uh, he did some uh, interviews on the Theology Podcast and uh, Aaron Wren Podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, but Arthur Kwan Lee, I think he's working with Tempura as his medium. But he he cakes on tons of paint onto his paintings. You can buy a print of them; it'll be flat. Mm -hmm. But you you know he's caking on so much paint in the process of putting together these extremely complex images that when you're in the presence of it, it's a 3D image. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how much paint has been put on. And that is a part of what he's trying to do with his art, mm -hmm. right? So the, the embodied nature of the, of the caked on paint, the, the, the way that it almost comes across as like a base relief. Yeah. If you're familiar that's with um, you know, or I think of uh, uh, Makoto Fujimura, who's mm -hmm. pretty famous, who, where he's, um, uh, using this ancient Japanese um, mode of uh, art, I think it's called Nihonga, I could be wrong, um, of melting down metals into the paint and then incorporating that into the image. Wow. These are very physical embodied yeah. ways of, and that but that and that but that's what people are becoming attracted to right now. Well, I think a part of that's because there's a cultural recovery or at least a cultural thirst to recover. Mm -hmm the uniqueness of our embodied intelligence. The reason why this, I, I guess why 
AI got on my nerves, um, gets on my nerves, is uh, I I view everything through my own uh, <laughs> uh, problems <laughs> and um, <laughs> uh, issues in that. But um, I, I I became very much aware of like my my whole belief system grew to a place uh, a decade ago where I, I just thought, and we hear this all the time about just head knowledge, right? The more you know. And, and, and I guarantee, I guarantee you go to your average church member and, and you ask them, like, what makes a good uh, disciple? Or you ask them for a prayer request, right? And most likely they'll say, that, say something like, well, I need to read my Bible more. I need to know more things. Um, in, in, the, in the experiences and circles that I've had, people are very much, uh, or the church very much is just, just swallowed again, this idea of this disembodied, just this, this knowledge. And they think that that's what, if you know more, if you can process faster, if uh, you know your doctrines and that, then you're a, a better believer. And, and I've, I fell into that too. And it wasn't until I learned that, well, and, and that's a Genesis of bumper sticker faith once again, uh, that I was really good at giving the chat GPT answers <laughs> to yeah. when people ask me about faith or questions and um, very good at processing what I knew from the Bible and theology and that. And, and, and God had to level me and bring me to a place where, no, it's not about that. You, you're a body, <laughs> you're a whole self and your, and your whole self is important and mm-hmm. it need, you need to be more, you know, integrated and not just integrated with yourself, but integrated with the whole world around you too. Like you're a part of this bigger thing that I made and I'm not God, God's, you know, saying I'm not just this, um, ones and zeros in a book, but I'm all around you too. I'm, I'm in you, you know, I'm, and it just, I just really want to recapture that bigger sense. And that's why general revelation has been so important to me lately, mm-hmm. um, because it's more embodied. It's more than just about, um, and I don't want to pit the two against each other because I, I very right. much think that you begin with the Bible and special re- revelation, but it informs the rest in it and it grows out into a proper understanding, uh, I guess, of who we are. We are embodied creatures. And, right. and, and what I do with whether or not I exercise affects my soul. Yeah. It absolutely does. And and a, maybe a, a a way to just kind of so we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, right? Mm-hmm. So I want to clarify: you are not saying that the mind is irrelevant. Mm-mm. What you're saying is that there's more to us than the mind, and there's more to the mind than data. And they're they're both connected. They're the same ball. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and. You know, one of the things that Mark Vernon brought up is the the need to recover imagination. Mm. So, um, uh, is it Malcolm Geit who describes imagination as sort of the the meaning producing yes. center? Yep. Um, that uh, that imagination is not that part of our mind that makes stuff up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of how we think about it. You know, like. Um, well, you know, imagination, that's the part that makes stuff up. Yep. No, it's not. It's the, the imagination is that part of our mind um, that places what we know into fields of meaning. Mm. So yeah. 
our imagination contextualizes things into meaning mm -hmm. uh right so you're you, you are sitting alone in a room saying words mm -hmm. right um it is your it is absolutely your imagination that helps you to recognize that you are talking to god right mm -hmm. that that prayer is what it is mm -hmm. you are seeing with the eyes of faith that doesn't mean you're making it up right it doesn't mean mm -hmm. you're that you're making it up um you know in the same way that if you uh if if you're feeling particularly hateful towards somebody or mm -hmm. resentful towards somebody and you make a decided effort to try to understand that person's life from their own perspective mm -hmm. you you seek to to um to think sympathetically toward them um you know you you actually are using your imagination and you are probably getting closer to an objective idea of where that person is coming from even if in the final analysis they're still wrong they still need to change that move that you're making to address your bitterness and resentment is an imaginative move um but without that imaginative mood move sympathetically trying to understand someone from within you are going to actually be less objective in figuring out where they're coming from mm -hmm. right you're doing something imaginatively but it's something that makes you more objective so what imagination Absolutely. is yeah it's it's grounding you in meaning it's mm -hmm. it's a it's it's that uniquely human faculty of grounding ourselves in meaning we are the meaning creature um and because our imagination is connected to meaning <laughs> Right. There is well, a meaning and, and, and that's, and our imagination is connected to it, seeking it out, groping for it maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to put it in biblical terminology, we have been given dominion. Mm -hmm. So what, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, there's a lot that it means, but a big part of it is that we've been commissioned to rule on God's behalf. And so a big part of what our commission is, is to understand from the scriptures what the kingdom is and then to enact it. Mm -hmm to 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 imagine for our own lives to apply to our lives the scriptures what are we doing when we apply the scriptures well, we're imagining for our own lives what obedience is how to how to enact this thing i have maybe a couple other illustrations to maybe to illustrate this see if this works so imagination like say there's a there's a dark room over there what and and you're scared of it what does imagination do Imagination places a monster in there for you. And so that's why I say like mm -hmm. imagination is connected. It's our through line, I guess, to the meaning because the meaning of, of darkness and evil is scary things like a monster and our, right. and our imagination populates it with the right thing. Like that's, yeah. and that's in a very objective thing. Another, or, or a thief or a bandit yeah, on the highway. Yeah. Or any, the things which hide, the things which yeah. hide need My to be hidden. Yeah, I have or, another or evil things, you know. My, a, a personal example, my sister had a, a tragedy in her life and when her um her husband didn't get back with her after a, a long mm -hmm. amount of time, her imagination, you know, told her mm -hmm. that something was wrong. Yep. And, and something was wrong. Yeah, she was right. And and she was right. And that and, and that's how objective it is. Like so to say that your imagination is just making up things, um another example I guess is like with fiction, fiction writing. You know, a good, a good fiction book, uh, we, I think Christians, especially a certain kind of Christian says, no, only read the Bible, only read devotional, uh, nonfiction things because fiction, because fiction books, novels, 
uh, are making things up because they're yeah. too imaginative. But if you get, you know, a good fiction book, it's like it's like concentrate orange juice. <laughs> it's like right. taking all the things that are true and and showing you what they are in a very concentrated, focused way. Yeah. And the analogy even to that for another analogy is like a geometry book. You um, open up your geometry book from 10th grade geometry and it has these perfect triangles, perfect circles, perfect hexagons. Mm -hmm. And and are are those real? No, they're complete fiction. None of those exist in reality. Not in nature. Not in nature. They're not there. They're complete fictions. But on the other hand, they are so, uh, they're true. And they, when you learn what a, a hexagon looks like, then you can look out in your world and and through your imagination, say, oh, there's a, a stop sign or whatever else is shaped like a hexagon. So yeah. they, um, those, you know, quote unquote, fiction, things of our imagination very much help us to identify um, objective truths about our world. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I, I so I, I think just Mark Vernon's um, video is just such a helpful reminder of what it is to be human or at least a, a great deal of what it means to be human, what it means to be made in the image of God. These these are the things that make yeah. a person a person, yeah. uh, which is why artificial intelligence cannot be a person. Hmm. It, it cannot aspire to moral dignity because hmm. it isn't the kind of thing which bears the image of God. You know, a, a human being, even in embryonic form, mm-hmm. right, is the kind of thing which bears the image of God. Uh, and so even though it, it can't calculate at all. <laughs> yeah, right. But it's 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 that thing yep. which bears the image, which is made after the after the likeness. Yeah. Um, and therefore it has uh, moral dignity that cannot be compromised. Yep. Um, so Mark Vernon's video is, is a reminder really for us to be soulful. Mm-hmm about the way that we live our lives. Be soulful about the way that you live your life. Um, and, uh, you know, it's personally convicting just to call me back to prayer. Call me back to prayer and call me back to love. Yeah. You know, the there there's, mm. th- those are two things. I mean, it is hard to find anything more soulful than prayer mm. and love. Um, and not, and I, I want to make clear too, I'm not talking about sort of a loosey goosey, uh, you know, warm feeling mm-hmm. definition of love, but love as revealed to us in the life of Christ, mm-hmm. God made a world which could only be saved by an act of self-giving love because that's who he is. The, the father gives everything to the son and the son returns everything to the father in love with no remainder. Mm-hmm. And they are joined together in love by the spirit. And so when God made a world, he made a world that could only be saved by, by an act that reveals what it is to be God, mm-hmm. to give everything in love. Wow. That's what love is. And there's, that's, uh, to, to love is to, and to pray is to recover our humanity. And I've been short on both of those lately. And to suffer. Suffer, right, yeah, the, the, suffering is yeah. another form of human intelligence that only humans have because yeah, Christ, in love, yeah. 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 And that's, yeah. Part of love. You're right. That's right. And, uh, even in our, even as we try mm-hmm. to like, I guess what I want to 
make sure people can walk away away with is just even to begin to think about, okay, how do I be more human now as opposed, how can I recapture my uh, full humanity uh, and live that way? And what you pointed out, um, love, prayer, and um, wrapped up in that is suffering too for me and that those things make you more human. They make you more uh, embodied. They make you more intelligent. You know, some people out there don't have a lot of uh, uh, chat GPT calculating book smarts, but they've been through it and they have a wisdom from suffering and from loving and from serving that, yeah, that I can't hold a candle to for sure. Yeah. Another way of putting it is, um, you know, if, if our listeners are confused by the idea of becoming more human, it's like, well, I'm human already, yeah, you yeah. know, like uh, to put it another way, what, what Sam is getting at there is, is the idea that there are, there are possibilities that God put into your humanness and it's in discerning those possibilities and acting on them that, that you enjoy mm. the, the fullness of what God placed into your humanness. Yeah. And so when, when in your imagination you limit what it means to be you to these calculating acts, yeah. you're you're foreclosing on a bunch of other possibilities that God placed into into you. And Mark Vernon goes into this in the yeah. video. He mentioned some some things that might be confusing or or odd um, to our to our listeners. Again, he's coming from a, a particular perspective, but um, but the basic idea is is one that that we see in the in the scriptures that there's so much. Uh, to being the dominion creature and and we want to discern those possibilities in our day-to-day lives and and live it out there's so much to being a christian um that if if you're only conceptualizing your usefulness uh in terms of what you can do to compete with chat gpt mm-hmm. then um there's just so much more to you in that uh henry kissinger article who uh who wrote about first things yeah about yeah. ai I don't know if it was that one or the Atlantic, um, but he, he makes, Atlantic. yeah, he makes the point that it took humans 1500 years to play, to learn how to play chess in this way, to be as good as we are at it. And it took whatever computer, you know, a few seconds to learn yeah. how to do that. And should we feel threatened by that? It's like, no, every person is still a miracle of God. Every person is still a new creation that God is working in, doing something new in, and part of the joy and the meaning of being one of God's creatures is discovering what he's put into you and yeah. that slowly, patiently, prayerfully, lovingly, then drawing that out of yourself. I mean, that's, that's life period. <laughs> then you die yeah. and you, you know, go into his presence. But like an example is I, um, uh, when I was little, I, I love poetry. And I, I love writing poetry. And I stepped away from that for decades. And only recently, I'm like, no, God put that into me. I need to get that back out. And so I'm starting to write again. Sure, it's not good. Sure, it's terrible. Sure, it's, you know, I have no training, whatever. But I love it. You know, yeah. it provides meaning for me. It Maybe maybe it's not good as chat GPT. Maybe it's bad. You know, I don't know. But that's, uh, there's these. Well, and, and think- yeah. Just don't we'll feel threatened by it. Yeah. Yeah. So Andy Wilson um, is a yeah 
children's authors. There's a couple of adult books that are very good too, but um, my kids right now are reading, or I'm reading the Hundred Cupboard series to them. Which Great is, stuff. Look up Andy Wilson, oh, everyone. Oh, it's so good. It's gnarly. You know, like yeah. you're going to wonder, should I really be reading this to a six-year-old? <laughs> yes. Um, but Andy uh, uh, Wilson, he describes AI as us puppeting ourselves. Oh, wow. Like when we, when we think about like, should we be threatened by AI? Like, look, this is a, this is a kind of technology. It's kind of well, like, oh, the, the computer is better than us at poetry. <laughs> no, it's not. It's taking the raw material of all the poetry crafted by humans and mm. it's mimicking us. Puppeting it. Yeah. Yep. Like poetry came from us. Yeah. Poetry is a human thing. Yeah. And now humans have made a puppet mm. that puppets human intelligence. So it can make poetry, but that's because it's puppeting us. Mm -hmm. It's not compromising our moral dignity. And chess is a great example. I'm into chess, not good at it, but I am into it. <laughs> and um, like, think about Magnus Carlsen, the the greatest chess player to have ever lived. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he he has games where a computer uh, estimates his ELO score at over three thousand. Right, that's not his final score, but he has particular games where the computer's thinking this is an over three thousand mm -hmm. level player. Uh, like Vegeta and Dragon Ball Z, where he has the little like he's over this uh, you know thing breaks. Um, like so, how did Magnus? How does Magnus Carlson work? He's working in concert with AI, so he's running ideas through a program, hmm. and but he's he's feeding particular ideas of him of his into a program and then challenge using that tool to challenge himself. Hmm. So he's he has integrated the computer into. His creativity. Mm -hmm. I, I want to emphasize he's not he's not just trying to memorize all the moves the computer recommends. Yeah, yeah. He's he's making use of a computer to help his process, so that when he's in the creative act of actually, uh, you know, trying to prove a chess position, he he's gone into that creative moment, having made use of a tool up to that mm -hmm. point. It's a it's a beautiful example of how this technology can actually augment mm -hmm. um, human creativity. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. All right, we'll bring this uh, we'll bring this to a landing uh, for now. Mike, thanks for thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. On. Talk with uh, Dr. Mark Vernon. Uh, that was that was special. I do want to have him back on. I think um, introducing people to Barfield would be that would be great. I have very little exposure to Barfield, so that'd be really cool to hear. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. Thanks, everyone, uh, for joining us. This has been episode 86. And if you want to learn more, go to bumperstickerfaith.com. You can email us. You can uh, look up our Patreon account if you, if you select the tab, uh, BS Crew, <laughs> and you can learn how to um, support us. And then also, oh, leave us a review on Apple. I think you can leave reviews on Spotify too, but do that. Leave us a rating and a review. That would be uh, that would be helpful. Um, uh, share this. Um, that's all I got. Mike, you got anything? No. All right. Thanks everyone for joining us. Remember, don't go stepping a no. Yeah. Right. See ya.